Welcome to this podcast of the Aquila Report and uh, Weekly Review. Uh, this is the opportunity that we have each week uh, when we gather the top 10 articles that the readers of the Aquila Report for the, for the week before have uh, clicked on articles to read uh, and that showed what the levels of interest are and so at the end of the week we gather the numbers and we say these are the top 10 of about the 56 articles that are published each week and then Paul Harold and I Dominic Aquila uh, come together and we highlight these as a as a informational piece as well as a tease because we usually uh, the numbers we get the numbers on Monday which is today, which is today, uh, May 10th. And on Tuesday, the uh, newsletter is sent out and the list is there so that everyone can read uh, who receives it. And uh, so we're really glad that uh, we can have this opportunity to uh, converse and just explain a little bit of what we see here. Maybe there's a trend uh, that uh, is here, but we these are the numbers coming from you, the readers. And as I've said before, I think the uh, readers of the Aquila Report are very discerning, uh, very, uh, they're educated, they're readers, they think. Uh, and so there are articles here at times that uh, we may not agree with editorially, uh, but we believe that is dealing with a matter of interest uh, part of our churches, for our culture, that we need to be aware of. And so they're presented to you. So, Paul, uh, we're ready to go with these top yes, 10. Yes, we are. Yeah, the conversations okay. and the concerns of people are really evident in what they read every week. Absolutely. And uh, and like I said, I always try and figure out which ones are these. And I don't think I really hit uh, hit on the mark as much this week, uh, So, I'm, which I'm glad for because that's not good to be too predictable. So the first two articles, actually, we could look at together uh, deal with uh, something in Finland that uh, has taken place. And uh, that we see popping up in other uh, other countries, and that is the question of how the freedom to speak uh, and to, uh, to address uh, questions that are properly before uh, a culture. And so the first two articles deal with um, this issue in Finland, both with a member of parliament in Finland. Uh, it was article number one. And then number, article number two is a bishop elect, one a man who's been elected as the uh, bishop. He hasn't been installed yet, who was charged over his historic Christian teaching on human sexuality. Both of these articles deal with the question of what does the Bible say on marriage and sexuality? So the first article dealing with the MP uh, is basically uh, saying that uh, the uh, MP was uh, in, not, in 2019 wrote a tweet questioning the leadership of her church for sponsoring an LGBT event called Pride 2019. And it was accompanied by an image of a Bible verse. As a result, she was accused of hate speech and interrogated by the police. So here's a member of parliament who is active in her church. She sees an article uh, that she's not pleased with. And so she uh, tweeted about it. And uh, and because of that tweet uh, two years ago, they're now bringing her up on uh, charges. Uh, she is a strong believer from all the indications that are in this article where she uh, addresses the uh, importance of uh, being able to speak, especially a member of parliament. And because they have 
deal with creating laws and dealing with issues and, and culture. Uh, she does say at one point that uh, because uh, this passage reads, therefore, God gave them over to their sexual desires, which is the Bible verse that she quoted uh, from Romans 1. Uh, she says, because of this, God gave them over to uh, shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural and sexual relations with unnatural ones. So uh, Raz Anin, I think is the way it's pronounced, her last name, um, began to uh, speak of this. She says, as a believer, I believe, and as a member of parliament, I believe to it's proper you know, for me to be able to uh, speak out. And then corollary to that, is the second one from this um, uh, bishop-elect of the, uh, the Lutheran Church in Finland. Almost a Scandinavian has a strong uh, Lutheran uh, background. Uh, that this uh, bishop uh, was um, being challenged and pros- being prosecuted with incitement against homosexuals. So he basically uh, was speaking out against them, or just actually not even speaking out as much as uh, giving teachings on the issue of sexuality. One of the booklets in this instance was written back in 2004 before the whole matter of um, LGBTQ and homosexuality and u- human sexuality was an issue. And uh, so now in um, in 2021, he's being uh, charged with something that this uh, booklet says a booklet argues that homosexual activity must be identified as sin by the church on the basis of the teachings of scripture. So that the author, basically uh, uh, a Finnish member of parliament, uh, further argues that a failure to recognize sin as sin undermines the very need of a, for a savior. So there you, you speak out uh, before, you know, the way I would look at it is uh, we just want a seat at the table. And now we want to control the table is basically what's taking place. Yeah, you are exactly right. And I think uh, one of the reasons this was on uh, the top 10 list or the top two of the 10 is because a lot of people realize what's coming here in the United States of America. We already see it in Canada. We see what's going on uh, with the COVID lockdowns and them arresting pastors who are still uh, going to, you know, let their congregation meet to worship God. And now we have, uh, you know, this situation with people, you know, teaching what the Christian church is, has always taught. Uh, and that's one of the the uh, the lines here the, the, about homosexuality. This is what the Christian church has always taught and will always teach. And I think a lot of people and there's another article coming up, you know, how do we survive what's coming? It's it is definitely typical of the Christian experience when you look at it from the whole of history. But it is uh, atypical in terms of you know, what we have experienced in Western civilization uh, in our lives, in, in our time of living. So um, there's a reason this is on people's minds, and it needs to be. We need to continue to pray uh, that we may be allowed to go preaching the gospel in peace. Uh, and that also means the word of God and the scriptures and everything, the the entire, you know, uh, you know the, the, the entire document. Um, but this is what's going on in Western governments, and it's it is frightening. It is very, very sad, and it, there's going to be more of it, I fear, before it's corrected. No, exactly right, and I think that's the important thing, and I think that is the you're correct in saying that uh, there is a fear factor on our part as uh, Christians who believe that we, especially in the United States anyway, where we have the 
freedom of religion as well as freedom of speech that uh, that is being closed down in different ways uh, through intimidation and the like. And uh, so the importance of standing firm. But this also is takes up uh, the phrase that Athanasius made possibly one of the early church fathers uh, that we need to be contramundum, that is contrary to the world. Not that we are speaking, not that we're beating up on the world, but that we have a different uh, disposition, a presupposition. We have a biblical mind, and we're speaking that into the world, the light going into the darkness, and the two are in contrast. And we need to recognize that uh, to, as John says, to be at friends with the world is to be an enemy of God because light and darkness can't coexist. So we can't be equally yoked together, as Paul says in Second Corinthians, um, because light and darkness have no fellowship. And yet we keep trying, thinking that if we just accommodate here and accommodate there, that everything will be fine. Uh, so we're always going to be contramundum, that is contrary to the world. And, uh, and, it's, and that's, so yeah, that's the important well, and to thing. To your point to about the light and the darkness not being able to coexist. We also know that the light exposes the darkness and that's yes. why the darkness is now coming after in this specific instance, you know, these two believers across uh, the Atlantic. Exactly. Well, uh, another uh, topic. Uh, so that's number one and number two, both dealing with Finland, uh, one for the ma- member of parliament and also a man who's been elected as the bishop. Uh, now he's under uh, scrutiny and uh, charges uh, for take, you know, just preaching what he believes he is appropriate, even inside the church, much less outside the church. So the next is uh, the other issue that's very sensitive uh, today and very sort of high profile is a matter of critical race theory, CRT. And uh, Neil uh, Shenvey has been uh, speaking uh, and teaching a great deal on this and this article by him uh, in which he says how to preach against critical race theory. Now that starts out sounding, you're going to be very negative, but he actually urges in this article that we not uh, you know, be- become bellicose with uh, critical race theory, especially in uh, the way we inform our congregations and our fellow believers uh, about this. Uh, he explains what critical race theory is just to make sure that uh, we get a clear understanding. And he has lectured um, greatly about it. And you, there are a number of hyperlinks in this article that will uh, take you to sites where you can get those uh, good definitions. But He says, in this essay, I'd like to encourage pastors to oppose the errors of CRT, but I'll suggest what might seem like an unusual approach. Pastors should consider preaching against CRT without mentioning CRT at all. Uh, Let me repeat that pastors consider preaching against it without using the phrase critical race theory. Now, why, he says, well, at least for two reasons, is that we need to take our focus off of the label of critical race theory and focus instead on the unbiblical ideas that are at the heart of the CRT. And so that goes back with just having said that, uh, that shows that that light darkness contrast and that there are different presuppositions that we have. So if we have the mind of Christ, as Paul says and talks about it in First Corinthians and uh, that we we're able to discern things uh, and speak into a world 
uh, who, because they're not in Christ, they cannot think God's thoughts after him. We can because of God having revealed himself to us through Christ and also in the word. But so one is, he says, uh, is deal with the real heart of the issue. And you don't have to say it because in one sense, uh, critical race theory is also found in a number of other concepts. So the concept of it is found in other theories and uh, philosophies in the world. So our worldview is what we should expose from the scripture. Secondly, he says, critical race theory is an academic discipline with a vast literature spanning multiple decades, dozens of uh, major scholars and tens of thousands of pages. And therefore, any pastor who's really going to do justice to it, you know, he should sound like he really has studied it well enough to speak intelligently about it. However, if we're really preaching what the scripture says, we can deal with core issues and core ideas, not only of uh, Christian critical race theory, but of anything. So just for instance, he gives a couple of ex- a number of examples. One is uh, racism is sin. Uh, because one of the things critical race theory deals with is the question of sin. The question is it is I mean of race is uh, it's systemic in culture, and uh, therefore it sets up categories and degrees of importance or lack of importance uh, in a culture. And basically, what he's saying, if we deal with the concept of racism from the scripture, and he gives some examples, then we can deal with the larger uh, picture and point people in a different direction. The other uh, thing that he would say is a Christian's primary identity is in Christ, not in their demographic group. So instead of pitting one group over against the other and arguing against systemic racism and that uh, whether red or yellow, black or white, you're better, worse or indifferent, um, deal with the the fact is that uh, in Ephesians 2, Paul deals with uh, the fact that Christ came and he broke down, tore down the the wall that separated the ethnicities and the various people groups. And now in the church, we have become one. So we're one body, one person, one citizen, one temple that are working together. So those are the kinds of things. So it's a very helpful article that takes the thing instead of railing against what is common and being used quite a bit. uh, Here's a positive, affirmative way to highlight what is the biblical position and give that worldview, and that'll be substantial for your people, uh, whether it's in a pulpit setting or whether it's uh, in a classroom or a small group. I thought it was good that he mentioned this is about shepherding your flock, and critical race theory is this big issue of the day. And it is, uh, you know, the shepherd's responsibility to figure out, you know, how to address these things um, but to do it from a biblical standpoint. So, for example, he writes, my proposed solution is to shepherd your flock by sticking to what you know and are commanded to expound the Bible. There are core biblical truths that will radically undermine the core tenets of critical race theory. Therefore, critics will be forced to critique the Bible itself rather than critiquing your grasp of critical race theory or your motivations or your politics. And that's where we ultimately want this issue to be settled by appeals to the Bible. And I can just kind of see gaming this out. I mean, if if there was a congregate who is being lured or tempted by the allures of critical race theory and what it means, you know, hopefully you can snap them out of it if they realize, well, wait a second, 
I'm actually disagreeing with the word of God on this issue and I need to repent and think differently, you know? Um, and so I, he's exactly right. This is the way to shepherd is, is to now again, you know, in order to do that, you, ha- you can't shy away. You know, when when you're expounding the scriptures, you can't shy away from the difficult truth that directly contradicts it, you know, which uh, might be the temptation of some in power. So anyway, it is. And that that's but it's a I think the affirmative way to do, it because we if we're going to answer any question, we have to begin with the scripture because it's what gives the world view. And so as we're speaking to. First of all, ourselves internally in the church, we have to, you know, say what is the system that we see in the scripture that guides us in this and um, and exposit it and teach it. And then secondly, when we go out and talk about these things, instead of just dealing only with one aspect of it, because uh, CRT or intersectionality uh, are only subsets of a greater uh, issue that's at stake. And he actually deals with that. He talks about the heart and the uh, the uh, importance of where we're coming from as uh, people in this world and really what's going to ultimately bring people uh, to uh, who are outside of Christ to an understanding of Christ it's going to be the grace of the gospel and so we need to find that way of understanding enough of what they're saying in order then to have a clear conversation with them that's somewhat cogent uh, without having to do, defend against uh, something like critical race theory, but to present them the, the clarity of Christ and what he and the hope that he brings in the world and to individuals. Okay, well then number four goes closely with this is from Carl Truman and one of his articles in First Things. It's called Identity Politics, Opium of the People. And if you know your history, one of the quotes, and he refers where Mark gave this quote uh, that Karl Marx uh, referred to religion as the opium of the people. That is, it sedates them. It's sort of, you know, if you really are into uh, some kind of drug that is mind altering uh, or emotional altering, then opium can uh, do that. So uh, using that, he says now identity politics has really become that opium. Uh, he says, I, I, and the, the issue here is identity. Notice that we've used the word identity now in the first three articles before this. And so the question of identity is really uh, center in much of what we're talking about here. So um, the he says identitarianism, identitarianism represents not the heart of our heartless world so much as the same world's unforgiving heartlessness pushed to its ruthless and destructive practical conclusion. So uh, he goes on to uh, say that Christianity calls out sin and demands repentance, but it has grace and forgiveness at its heart. The shrill voice of identity politics screams for repentance, yet it presumes that there's no actual act of repentance that will ever be sufficient. Uh, It offers neither grace nor forgiveness. That is because total victory, not reconciliation, is the real name of the game. And even Marx recognized in Christianity the heart of the heartless world. And I think that that little section really sums up what's at stake. And it goes back to the reason why we want to preach on this is that the is that Christ is the one who leads us out of whatever 
the sin issue is how whatever we're identified with as uh, in the living in this world, um, although really our sin really you know carries a wide, wide swath, and we probably have many identity things that we're wrestling with. But with reference to uh, the relationships that we have in culture, that's he. Uh, th- this article really helps to put in focus that only the scriptural, uh, biblical Christianity presents the real remedy answer that only uh, God can give by His grace through Christ, and that is that there is genuine repentance for whatever the sin may be, and that uh, Jesus really did pay it all. And it kind of does bring about change in our union with Christ, which is another form of saying identity. So instead of um, being finding satisfaction and, and elevating my union, my identity, whatever it may be, in this world that is filled with other people elevating their identities and there's competition, uh, then really what you have there is warfare uh, between ethnicities. Uh, how much better it is if we follow that dictum I've mentioned Ephesians 2 before, where verses 11 and following, where Paul really shows how Christ is the only real answer to all of that stuff that flows in the world that separates us um, because we're holding on to our notions that what I am in myself and as a sinner is more important than knowing Christ. And the g- grace just breaks through that and breaks the cycle of that sin. Amen. Amen. I, I completely agree with that. I also think that Truman does a really good job here um, because Mark's point, when Mark says that religion is the opium of, of the people, when he said this, and what's interesting is coincidentally or not coincidentally, uh, I uh, was listening to uh, R.C. Sproul's sermon on atheism, and, and he talked about a lot of the philosophers in atheism and how you know, most atheists think that us religious people have something psychologically wrong with us in the head. Anyway, he mentioned this Marx quote about how the you know Marx believed the the opium of religion was used to control us so that you know the uh, minority of people who have all the money can keep the majority of people down. Specifically, hey, you know, life's not great now, but you'll die and you go to heaven. And so that's that was his thing. It was a way to keep us docile, which is a perfect analogy to flip that on its head and say that identity politics is actually the opium of the people, because that's exactly what Marxism is, is identity politics, whether it's the workers versus the the rich people or now, whether it's just anybody who has a victim, anyone who has a grievance. Well, I was born black or, well, I was born poor or, well, I was born a woman or, well, I was born trans. Whatever the victim is, is now a means to divide. And in reality, the truth of the matter is, because we know how evil Marxist ideas are and how it promotes the very oligarchy that Marx claimed that it was going to end, is that these identity politics that are promoted in virtually every single mainstream institution in America, whether you're talking about professional sports, where you're talking about politics, whether you're talking about the big, uh, you know, uh, uh, the big corporations that are being infiltrated by the communist Chinese, they're all essentially promoting this idea of victimization and who's the victim and who's got the power and who doesn't have the power. And it is addicting and everybody wants to blame somebody else for their problems. And that's really the opium. And in the meantime, those people are getting more and more powerful. The people promoting the division, and that's what all this is, is promoting division amongst us. 
is looking at our differences and worshiping ourselves. Um, and eventually, if you really take this out to the end, to the nth degree, there's going to be one person pointing at everybody else saying that they've done them wrong. And, that, and you know, and the whole idea collapses on itself at that point. Absolutely. And and um, that's the reason I think <clears throat> that reading that article and uh, stirs, you know, the mind uh, in terms of recognizing how the, the world is always grasping for some sense of authenticity in their lives and maybe broken to get over the brokenness they feel and all sorts of things. And they, they uh, are, they continually change, you know, philosophies and thinking because uh, they can't be settled on anything and it becomes very despairing. And here we are with the gospel. So once we read these articles, we're not doing it in order that we can march out there with, uh, uh, swords and, um, and so forth, but with the gospel of grace. So trust that will be helpful. So uh, Carl Truman has helped us with that. Um, the next um, article that uh, comes up is uh, sort of a, moves us in that uh, same direction. Um, this is number five, and it is dealing with uh, transgenderism. And uh, it's it's a book review of Embodied is the name of it by Preston Sprinkle, Preston Sprinkle Embodied. And the review is written by Robert Smith, Robert S. Smith, and he entitles it Embodied Transgender Identities, the Church and What the Bible Has to Say. So he mentions of all the recent evangelical engagements with the questions raised by transgender experience, Preston Sprinkle's Embodied is arguably the most comprehensive and penetrating and compelling. The book is not not only addresses the cultural, medical, and psychological and social angles of the trans phenomena, but also includes several chapters of incisive biblical exposition and valuable theological exploration. And so Smith goes through in uh, each chapter just giving a summary of what uh, were introduced uh, on and the conflicts. And this is something that will be coming to a church uh, in your neighborhood soon, if it's not already, that we will be facing because it seems like it's just one of those natural outcomes of all the other things that we've just been speaking about. And uh, he basically uh, says at the end of the positive side of the review, he has a couple of minor um, concerns. But he says, after a well-researched chapter that casts serious scientific doubt on the possibility of a person having a male brain and a female body or vice versa, chapter nine turns to the deeper question of whether a person can have a female soul in a male body or vice versa. Sprinkle begins by pointing out that because sex is a biological category, immaterial souls can't be sexed. Uh, that's on page 149. After laying out additional challenges to the sexed soul theory, he concludes that the only way an affirmative case can be made is first by assuming a strong form of substance dualism, which he deems unbiblical, and second by relying on modern stereotypical assumptions about what constitutes femaleness and maleness. And I think that really summarizes uh, a lot of what this book embodied is talking about it, and he does cover a lot of the uh, major issues, if not all, I mean, the Robert Smith is giving a fairly good review uh, so that we know, you know, what the book's about. Uh, obviously, we have to read it to uh, know more about it. So, um, it, but this is another one of those 
issues that uh, is in the uh, life of the church. I mean, even right now, we're seeing it played out on our screens with uh, the possibility of uh, gubernatorial candidate or um, um, Kristen Jenner, um, who used to be Bruce Jenner, um, running for governor of California. And uh, so it's now being treated as just a natural kind of thing because of that exposure that we are getting on uh, television with um, he, her, him or her running for uh, governor. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. Um, it's certainly there's certainly a, um, an effort to normalize this um, uh, just on both sides. And it's 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 literally just to win the trying to win the governorship of California. You know, if, if you're a Republican and I read somewhere where it's, you know, you're, you're trying to win a battle by giving up the war. And I completely agree on that on that front. I mean, this this should, is something that shouldn't be normalized. And I think we've, I've really come to the conclusion, Dominic, that all of this stuff, um, your your domestic policy, what is good domestic policy or good government is way, 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 way downstream of culture. And if we're going to, um, you know, I, I used to be one of these guys that was obsessed with the national debt. Well, I mean, what if, if we have a country that is morally downgraded uh, as much as it is, why would they ever want to have a balanced budget or not go into debt? You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. It's 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 not even something that we should ever expect to happen um, when we're being asked to, you know, come to the other side of the table with this other part of the culture that believes men are women and women are men. And they want us to affirm that. And they think they're the ones that are morally superior. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a helpful article. It really does dissect. I mean, that stuff about the soul, a male soul or a female soul, it was, uh, really thought provoking for sure. Yes. And that's something we usually don't even uh, consider. And so to have, uh, Preston uh, bring that out in his book is a, a very helpful and he goes he doesn't just deal with a cursory he does from the review uh, he really does you know plow down deep so that uh, we can uh, get some analysis on it but it is uh, something that is constant before us at this point and we need to uh, you know look at that uh, the, the next article takes a little bit of a different turn, number six, um, and it's titled Sacerdotalism in the Contemporary Church and Contemporary Worship. And sacerdotalism is a fancy word for sacramentalism. That is the, that someone is doing something in worship for you or on your behalf. And uh, so if you think of more of the higher, uh, the high liturgy churches, uh, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and maybe an Episcopal, high Episcopal church, uh, they tend to be more sacerdotal in that they, um, there's, there are functions that are done for them by the clergy or the priests that are called to that appointment. So the contemporary evangelical church doesn't necessarily have that. And so he's addressing mainly the evangelical side. uh, And he says, he begins with the principle of Part of the reason is that we hold to the concept of the priesthood of all believers, and of course, it properly understood, then how do we serve before God ourselves? Uh, He says, unfortunately, while the contemporary evangelical church doesn't necessarily suffer, this is Scott Aniol, who is writing the article, doesn't necessarily suffer from the kind of sacerdotalism that developed in the medieval church, a similar problem has emerged, something that sort of looks like it. 
and much contemporary worship today, congregational participants participation is minimized uh, by the uh, emphasis on performed music on stage. Like clergy in the medieval worship, musicians in contemporary worship have taken on a priestly role. That's in uh, quotes uh, in the in the serv- in the service. Even the title quote worship leader. Uh, to describe the chief musician developed from the idea that musicians head the congregation into the presence of God through uh, the music. And the quality of the music in many churches has become measured by the excellence of the performed music and the atmosphere it creates. This has resulted in, quote, worship becoming mostly what the praise team does on stage, which is separated from, by, from the congregation by bright lights and darkened congregations. And the people have become more spectators of the worship performed by the praise team on their behalf. So that's the gist of what the sacerdotalism is. And so instead of there being the administration of the sacraments or of the prayers for the people or any other kind of um, worship experience or action that is given over to clergy in those sacerdotal uh, churches, the uh, now he says in the evangelical church it's been taken over by the uh, the music as performance and uh, operating in place so we really don't participate as believers as much as we used to with holding the tactile hymn book and uh, singing congregational hymns uh, together. Yeah, you know when I was reading this, what came to mind was really just the uh, the proscenium, if you will, the stage, if you will. Um, that's kind of where it, it's such a cultural standard that we all recognize as a form of entertainment. Um, you know, whether you go back all the way to the proscenium of, you know, the the Italians and the opera, or whether you you, you know you look how we've adopted it in, in in movies when you go to the movies or plays or specifically rock concerts now and what that has become, we all. There's a convention. There's a mode of, of communication between these elements and us. And in our culture, a stage says, I'm going to be entertained. Um, it certainly doesn't say I'm going to participate um, in uh, in any sort of worship. And that's that's the hump that we have to overcome here in some in some capacity. I don't really know what the answer is, but the points raised here in this article, in my opinion, are completely valid. And it resonates with me a whole lot. Um just as somebody who recognizes these conventions that are used to communicate with an audience about how you're about to be entertained. Exactly. And, and I think there will be a, a, a church history. If you look, take the long view, uh, you do have cycles. Uh, there are ups and downs of mountaintops, valleys and the like. And so we're as a church and especially within the evangelical body uh, going through a period of time, where after some time, someone will come up with this idea of, uh, why, why don't we have hymn books in here, and why don't we do this and do that, you know, organs and pianos and, and the like, and just uh, sing uh, from our hearts to the Lord. And uh, it'll be thought of as new and novel, and people will do ooh and ah about something that uh, was a part of the uh, history of the church from another era. So I think it's um, important uh, that we realize that uh, as we think about ordering worship and how we participate ourselves, that we need to really come back to the scripture and explore what is a good biblical 
theology, scriptural theology of worship? What is it that God expects of us as individual believers as part of the corporate entity that gathers for worship, which we're told by Hebrews, do not forsake the assembling of ourselves. And the assembling is a God-called activity. He assembles us. And so don't forsake that assembly because uh, it, it's good and right. Uh, and he, uh, we need that sense of belonging because it's not good for the man to be alone. That is the principle of relationships, not only important in individual life, uh, but also in our corporate life in the church. So, okay, well, number seven uh, gives us maybe uh, a sort of take a deep breath here, guys, and recognize that no matter what is taking place, God is still on the throne. He hasn't abandoned that. He hasn't been overthrown. Uh, another, no dictator has uh, overthrown him and assassinated him. He is still present. And uh, this is Alistair Begg uh, giving us this uh, picture where he says, welcome to exile. It's going to be okay. So it's a good pastoral uh, affirmation that no matter what is taking place, again, every generation of history and definitely every generation of God's people has gone through some type of uh, captivity, whether it's in the mind. We talked about the in our first two articles, the, uh, the member of parliament, the pastor who are strong believers and they, in essence, are being captured and in and feel like they are in the belly of the beast and uh, being held hostage. And so he, um, Alistair Begg, uh, refers to uh, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in Daniel 2 that Daniel is able to interpret. And he talks about this, uh, sees this large statue, and the statue represents the great empires of the ancient world with Nebuchadnezzar as its head. Uh, and all, that is all, are su superseded by and brought to nothing by a small rock. And the meaning, uh, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. Uh, here, Alistair Beck says, is the main and plain thing. Uh, human history is under the control of God, and he has a purpose that will be achieved. And the message of the dream was for the young exile as much as for the apparently all-powerful king. God would replace every kingdom and bring into being his everlasting kingdom. And that is what he did when he sent his son and who announced uh, the kingdom of God is at hand in Mark 1.15 as Jesus began his earthly ministry. So Jesus was and still is the rock that God fashioned out of nothing. And here we uh, has an everlasting kingdom, and it appeared to the, that the Roman statue had smashed a rock by nailing it to a cross, and yet it was not possible, even for death, to keep hold of this king. So that's the uh, thrust of this, and we need to. It's a hopeful thing. It's when we allow just what we can see with our eyes to overwhelm us, we feel like we're trapped, uh, and this. Uh, reminds us that there is another kingdom that we live in the heavenly realms that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places and so we have that dimension as well as the physical dimension and uh, we need to be aware of uh, who's in control and at the end of Revelation if you go to the read the last chapter uh, we know what happens to the devil and uh, death and uh, Hades uh, they're Amen. cast into the lake of fire and uh, experience the second death. So this article to me, 
so I had this thought. I know we didn't get to do a podcast uh, last week, Dominic, but um, you know, I, I was I read the top ten list and I had kind of a a thesis or a hypothesis or that just it kind of dawned on me. And this article kind of brings that back up. So this exile, okay, welcome to exile. It's going to be okay. God's kingdom is unsmashable. And it has an embassy in your neighborhood that we call the church. Okay, that's great, and it's exactly right. What about those people who don't want to acknowledge that we're in the exile or we're in an exile? Uh, and and to me, um, that is what I, I think there's a lot of people that, that don't want to acknowledge that because of the love of culture or the approval of culture that the church once enjoyed. And they they don't want to get to that realization, or and they maybe don't want their congregation to get that realization. And what I mean by that is, I mean, just go to any of these articles, uh, whether it's homosexuality, whether it's critical race theory. Um, it, it just seems to me that being called a racist is the worst thing that you can be called today in society. Um, and. I know this. I'm going to jump a bunch of steps ahead here, but what what I fear is about to happen in the culture, and it's already happening in some places. But if you believe in the Bible, you are a bigot and a racist. That's not true, but that's the lie that is going to be shouted from the rooftops. And I think a lot of people don't even want, even if it's a, no, it's a false accusation. They don't even want it to be made, and so there's this effort to try to avoid recognizing what will happen if it does get to that point, and that's universally declared, well, then now we're in the exile. Now we don't have even the tip of the hat from the, from the pagan culture. The church is all bad. The church, You know what I mean? They've made, they've made their indictment, if you will, against us. And so that was my thesis. And, and you have to go look at the top ten list of last week, and maybe you can make sense of my ramblings, uh, listeners and Dominic. But, uh, yeah, welcome to the exile. It is going to be okay. God is in control, and that's the good, good, the good news. Uh, I just uh, couldn't help but remember, I feel like some, some people are maybe in denial about uh, the state of things, specifically in America. Yeah, and we don't want to be in denial. The question is, how do we live? As uh, the way I like to put it is just to show the contrast in the belly of the beast. Because even if we don't have all of those threats that are you know being cut off being called racist or uh, some other challenge like that um that we still live in the belly of the beast and that's why we are to be bright light shining in the dark world as paul says in philippians 2 and our business is always to be the people of god in the world uh, to recognize that we are light in the midst of darkness and that that's the whole point is that we're testifying that's what jesus did uh, he came into the world, and the, the world received him not. Uh, he was that light, but the light tried to extinguish him, and they thought that they prevailed on the cross, and the uh, only problem was he broke forth in resurrection life and light, and uh, and now he gives us that resurrection life uh, when he calls us to himself. So that uh, the, there's uh, no way that we can expect in a sinful, uh, fallen world to have any kind of utopia. And sometimes we dream of that. We're trying to recreate Eden or we're trying to bring forward the new Jerusalem and bring it here earlier than when Christ says it's going to come. So we need to, in the meanwhile, 
as the old adage is, is we already possess it, but it's not yet full. So we have that already not yet conundrum that we live with, uh, and therefore we can live in great hope now, as well as uh, what the future is going to hold for us. Amen. And that's what I think Alistair Begg was uh, uh, really dealing with this. Now, having said that, we come back into the one of the realities of the church uh, suffering. <laughs> this is great. Yeah, that you right. go from that to this. Is right. Uh, but it's set in the context. Uh, this is a book on um, this uh, uh, Tim Chalice, uh, Fierce Wolves Are Coming. And so there's a warning. And this is uh, an exposition of Acts 20 by uh, Alexander Strzok, who has written a number of books on the eldership and uh, church leadership and, and the like that have been very helpful. And now he's written this one about warning about the sheep that are coming. And it's taken mainly from Acts 28, uh, 2028 through 32. And uh, but it, he covers the whole of Acts 20, very pivotal a passage in and the Paul meeting with the elders of uh, Ephesian elders at the beach of Miletus uh, and what was said there. And basically what it's doing is he gives an affirmative first. He says, remember, do you take care of yourself and remember that God is the one who has set you up as shepherds? He's speaking to the elders now. And you're to shepherd the flock over whom God has made you overseer. Uh, and he says, and the reason for that. And so, you know, he explains and he's already spoken positively about what he did. No matter going from house to house, I did not hold back from uh, telling you the whole counsel of God. I told you what the word said, uh, good, bad, or indifferent, or or ugly, uh, so that you would know it. Now, you uh, who are elders are still left here as the shepherds, and make sure you shepherd in this way, grounded in the scriptures and so forth, because I'm afraid that in the time to come, there will be fierce wolves that will arise from among you. So they're not going to be the ones, you know, we're somehow talked about these articles about what the world's doing with believers and arresting people who are speaking their mind from a biblical point of view. We have to worry about what's coming inside the church. And uh, so they will arise. And so he, this is that book that gives guidance from Paul about that side of the responsibility of the eldership. So shepherd the flock, make sure they're well taken care, protect them. Um, you know, the sheep uh, can wander, uh, get caught in the bramble bushes. And, and so you leave the 99 and go after the one and bring them back. But meanwhile, you also protect them and reward them about what is to come, not to be negative, but just to be wise as we uh, live this. So he says, as made evident in the book subtitle, and particularly focuses Paul's knowledge that fears wolves would soon be preying on the flock, some approaching from outside the church and some arising from within it. Since the beginning of time, uh, he's quoting now from, uh, from Strzok, false teachers and prophets have tried to deceive people uh, from believing the uh, truth of God's word. The Old Testament scriptures warned uh, about fake prophets, corrupt priests, idolatrous kings, and failed elders. And we should never be surprised by false teachers who are in reality agents of Satan. And that's a great quote and is exactly true. Uh, we can't be Pollyannish about it. We have to live in the realistic world that, uh, you know, we always come down to sin. I sort of joke with my people that I teach on a regular basis. If I ask a question, there are usually two answers. 
it's either because of sin or because of Jesus. So pick one and give it to me. And because that's basically what happens. It's either because of sin, uh, but Jesus is there to make it right. And we need to be aware of it. So it sounds like an excellent uh, book, Ch- Tim. Chalice has, uh, you know, commended it. And uh, I appreciated reading this review that he provided. Yep. The only thing I have to say is, I, I mean, I agree with the title. You know, guard the flock. Fierce wolves are coming. Right. Okay. Number nine is now back to our sexual identity issues, LGBTQ ideologues, propaganda, brainwashing the young and the younger still. And this is an article by Robert Knight. Uh, while some recent books for children are clever and uplifting, too many are being written for by ideologues with an axe to grind. This is uh, deadly serious as it is the, quote, woke, close quote, uh, BLM curriculum being forced on children in government schools. That is, read that as public schools. So the idea here is what is it that our children should be reading as children's books? And uh, he, uh, Robert uh, Knight here gives a number of um, story, you know, uh, authors that are standards for children's books, uh, Laura Ingalls, uh, Ingalls Wilder and uh, Dr. Seuss, uh, some, some of the Disney fair and others like that. And now we find that there are books that are being written that are promoting uh, the LGBTQ and critical race theory kinds of notions. And so he's just a warning, uh, you know, about uh, parents being alert uh, to what their children are reading. So in this case, the parents are like the shepherds we just spoke about from Acts 20. They, you know, uh, uh, ravaging wolves arising from within. Um, So our children are still developing their minds, their thoughts, and it's the responsibility of parents to instruct and guide them uh, to do a Deuteronomy 6 kind of things, to teach them um, when you rise up, when you get lie down, when you're walking by the way, as you're going about life, in the ordinary course of life, you're always teaching. And uh, this is a warning here that now in the area of printed material that are being promulgated in quite a few uh, schools, that it sounds like the, we need to be more circumspect and we need to make sure that we're monitoring that which our children are reading as their minds are developing and our responsibility to encourage them, teach them, uh, a la Deuteronomy 6. Yeah, you know, I think just really uh, what a lot of parents are realizing is that at this point with the new curriculums that are coming in uh, that are racist and, uh, you know, are promoting really kids to hate each other, uh, are also designed to um, come between you as the parent and your kids. And uh, it's becoming more explicit. It's becoming more, to me, just from what I'm reading, it seems like that's now the goal, is to raise your children instead of educate them. So a lot of people I, I've talked to are you know, having to rethink the trust that they put in the public school system. And that is a tough decision. For I know a lot of parents out there, but um, you know it's brainwashing is in this title, propaganda and brainwashing. And you know you look at this quote uh, from Vladimir Lenin. Uh, he reportedly said, "Give me your four-year-olds, and in a generation I will build a socialist state." So anyway, that's it. <clears throat> and the tenth article touches on that whole thing as well, but now it's dealing with adults, um, uh, with how they view. 
a reality. It's called Neat, Plausible, and Wrong, Mencken's Observation and How People Embrace Ideologies Divorced from Reality. That Just the title alone is condemning. It's uh, frightening that we uh, assume things and not in evidence necessarily. Um, it's We go more by our feelings. We had an article a few weeks back that uh, argued that if you if you're arguing rationally, if you're presenting good argumentation, uh, you're not really connecting with the feelings. You've already lost the debate. And that's because people do tend to uh, respond more emotionally uh, from the heart than this from the on the mind. So uh, this article is by uh, Nate Arbel. Uh, Natai, rather. Uh, this, you know, Gnosticism uh, is today particularly prevalent on the left, but I'm sadly seeing examples on conservative and libertarian sides as well, where we just go along to go get along, where we're not really processing information. We're not um, looking at reality from the full-orbed approach. Now, again, it goes back to what we said earlier, that a uh, from the biblical position, there is a, a biblical worldview, a framing that starts out with the knowledge that there is a God who is the creator. He's also the redeemer, and he is the author of all truth. And so we need to unpack his truth and understand it. And that's the lens by which we look at uh, the world and all the things in culture and the various subsets of culture. Uh, that because it's it's the true truth, as uh, Schaefer liked to say. And um, if we don't see it that way, then we can be drawn in with some aspect of a truth that maybe in itself is good. But when seen in the whole of that philosophy or that thinking uh, may not be. So we need to really have a holistic view of what the scripture is saying and what God's truth is. So that worldview is uh, well articulated and we, it, you know, it makes sense to us. So here's an article that will sort of challenge where we are coming from with reference to how we view uh, reality and not uh, just buy into an emotional response. Yeah, I, I agree, Dominic. It's uh, it's very good uh, article and, um, you know, certainly right that reality is complex in the human mind. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I it reminded me again of that R.C. Sproul sermon that I listened to a couple of days ago when it was just talking about, you know, the uh, the atheist and, uh, you know, they're, they're they put on us that we have some psychological need uh, to affirm God. And yet he, he puts it right back to him, said, well, you know, if I have that, then don't you have the need to suppress him? Um, and so anyway, um it's a good article. It's a lot deeper than that, by the way. Oh, it is. Uh, it really is. Just just one thing that we'll close with. It says, he says, alas, the pull of, quote, simple, elegant, and wrong explanations for reality exerts powerful pull on humans. It might be tempting to ascribe quokeness, uh, third wave misandry, uh, misandry uh, feminism, and the like to a naked uh, Nietzscheism, uh, willpower because Nietzsche dealt with a lot and he refers to him in this uh, article. You might even be largely right about that. And Mencken, a lifelong admirer of Nietzsche, would surely smile with great uh, uh, from the great beyond. But this cannot by itself account for the great appeal these misbegotten theories have to many people who ought to know better. So the hunger for a neat 
and plausible explanation goes a long way towards that. And so what we need is that neat and uh, plausible explanation really ultimately comes from God himself because he's the author of all truth. And so that's the reason we deal with that. So we hopefully, uh, what we'll do is really come back to the basics, come back to the ABCs of, uh, of faith and uh, life itself, because uh, the answers are really answered in knowing uh, who God is and how he's revealed himself through scripture and through his son, the incarnate word. Amen. Okay, well, there's another week, and tomorrow uh, at 11 Eastern, the, uh, the server sends out the um, the uh, newsletter. You'll be able to go up through these yourself and also take time to read other articles that are on the Equal Report because we post eight a day and uh, see what else is there. And by you doing that, you help to uh, give us what the next 10 uh, art- top 10 articles for the next week will be. So we uh, just encourage you to uh, read the Aquila Report. Uh, go to the AquilaReport.com. If you don't get the newsletter, you can uh, sign up for it online there. And we promise that we use our mailing list only for Aquila Report. We don't uh, sell it, give it away, or do anything else with it other than to use it for those who read uh, the Aquila Report. So the Aquila Report Week of Review is a podcast that is sponsored by the Aquila Report. And I thank Paul Harrell for uh, handling the technical side of things as well as uh, being involved in this uh, uh, discussion. Yeah, that's great. It is wonderful. And trust this will be beneficial. And so until the next time, uh, Lord bless you and keep you.